The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys? All right, all right, I'm doing good. Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to Luke chapter 12. That's where we're going to take our text from this morning. important passage here. I was thinking about this uh, this week. This is one of those passages that's um, it's contradictory to what you, what you would think. A lot of the Bible is, is actually talking to us about how to be saved, right? How, how to be transformed by the gospel and to be a part of God's kingdom. But in this particular passage, Jesus is really laying out for us how not to be saved. And it's, a, it's really interesting to see that, that he phrases this sort of in the negative. Um, so as we pa- walk through this, this passage here, uh, I, I think there's going to be some really important stuff for us to weigh and consider in our hearts as we come to God's Word. So let's start with an attitude of prayer. Father, as we open up your Word... We recognize how easy it is for us to skip over things that we don't prefer. We recognize, Lord, that what we want to do a lot of times is find some sort of positive spin or, uh, you know, some way to not feel conviction. But this passage in particular is one that is designed by your Spirit through the mouth of your Son to let us feel the full weight of the truth. So God, have mercy on us. Make our ears open to you and our hearts ready to receive from you. Weigh our thoughts. Weigh our hearts with your truth. And Lord, lead us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 12 of the book of Luke. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, lift your hand up and we'll make sure that some Bibles get to you. Uh, Just keep it up there. Somebody will be there shortly. We're going to begin in the first verse here. But before that, I think it's good to get a little bit of context here. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel had hoped. As he traveled... The common people and and the religious elite of Israel were witnesses to the scriptures and the prophecies of the Old Testament really coming to life in Jesus. The rabbis in particular would take note because of a tradition that they carried that was regarding the Messiah. It was a tradition that they said that the Messiah would perform four types of miracles. These messianic miracles, which are known in the Hebrew and in Judaism as the Nesim, uh, or Nesim v. Niflat. I don't know how to say it. Uh, but this is the tradition. And they're from the second temple period, which is the time that Jesus is, is living here. And it was, it was this idea that there were four corresponding miracles that were really pulled out and plucked out of Isaiah chapter 35, 51, and 53. 
four types of miracles that the Messiah would do when he came into his kingdom. That was the cleansing of a leper, the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of birth defects, and the raising of the dead after three days. So this was, these were things that rabbis taught during the second temple period that the Messiah would do. Now, now Jesus has been doing lots and lots of things. But in the previous chapter, there comes to him a person who has a demonic spirit that has made him mute. And he casts out that demonic spirit. And when he does so, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are brought to a crisis about what they have to do with Jesus. They're they're brought to a place where they have to make a decision about who he is. Like, what is the nature of Jesus? Who is he really? And what does that mean for us as God's people? This is why the insinuation from the previous chapter that Jesus was somehow casting out demons and healing the afflicted by the power of Beelzebub is so disastrous. On the one hand, both the common people and the religious elite openly talked of of longing for God to send his Messiah, to send his king. But now, he's here. Now the king is here, and the implications of what that means for Israel, and for them in particular, are scary. They're costly. So when Jesus healed the man with the mute spirit, the eyewitnesses must conclude only one thing, that Jesus is indeed supernatural. When, when, when they hear and they see that Jesus has healed this person who's possessed with the spirit that makes him mute and unable to talk, they, they, they realize, okay, well, he, he really wasn't able to talk. We really all knew about it. The, the community knew about it. Jesus really did cast the demon out. He really is healed. Something supernatural took place. And then it becomes an issue of whether you think the supernatural source is from God or Satan. Because there's only two supernatural kingdoms that exist. And obviously they weren't going to assign him to God, so they had only one alternative. They saw the issue very clearly. And the irony here is, that in doing so, in attributing that, that Jesus did the miracle by the power of the devil, by the power of Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, in saying that, they're acknowledging his supernatural power. They end up actually sort of becoming defenders of the supernatural character of Christ because they have to defend the fact that Jesus did something supernatural here. So, here's what they do. They say, Well, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. He did do something supernatural, but he just did it by the power of the devil. 
And so they, they blame what Jesus has done, the source of his power, on Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is kind of a funny, uh, funny term. It's something that maybe you, you recognize, maybe you don't, maybe you've heard it, or, but you might not be sure of where its roots are. Beel, the first part, is actually just a derivative of Baal, the, the pagan god of the Philistines in the Old Testament. Baal. And so Baal is the first part, and then Zebub or Zebul, Z-E-B-U-L, it is a word that means Lord. So this pagan Lord, right? Baal. That was the idea. Now, um, by the time that Jesus was around, the Hebrews, the Israelites, had taken that name, Beelzebul, and they had replaced the suffix, the Z-E-B-U-L, with another word that was very similar but spelled differently, Z-E-B-E-L. That suffix, Z-E-B-E-L, Zebul, or Zebel, uh, actually means flies, right? So, Lord of flies. That was a, a way of saying, your God is the Lord of poop. If he had an emoji, we know which one it would be. And so the Israelites had, had sort of twisted that, and, and it was sort of a, it became synonymous with talking about Satan and what kind of Lord he was. He's the Lord of poop. He's the Lord of flies. He's the Lord of dung, right? The Ekronauts worship the God of flies, which is crazy if you can even imagine that. So in calling Beelzebub, Beelzebul, it was a derisive thing. They were saying essentially, he, he doesn't have any influence. He's nothing more than the Lord of poop. So you can get the picture that was in their minds. And by making this accusation against Jesus, what's happening here is that these people, this crowd, this group that is saying this, is denying everything that they have seen to be true about Jesus. This insult, pointed at Jesus, was a denial of what they had witnessed. The problem was not that they did not have enough information about Jesus. They had all that they needed. The problem was that they did not like the outcome of believing what they had seen to be true about Jesus. They knew what kind of Messiah would come and how he would rule and what he would do. And when Jesus brought the gospel of the kingdom, saying that the kingdom is here, the king has come, when he was preceded by a prophet in the wilderness who looked like Elijah, who was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they saw that he could multiply bread and feed thousands, when they saw that wine flowed freely in his presence, when they saw that blind eyes were opened and the sick were healed, 
And the lame walked, and the dead were raised, and the demons were cast out, and the mute began to speak. When they saw it, they knew what was true. But they refused to receive it. They suppressed the truth. They found a way to deny the knowledge that God was giving them by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus in this passage begins to warn his disciples about the kind of truth suppression that takes place in the heart of people that he will call hypocrites. So let's start chapter 12, verse 1 after this interaction that he has with the religious leaders where he declares woes on them in response to them saying he's cast out this demon by the power of Beelzebub. In the meantime, verse 1, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark, it shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I warn you, to fear, warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he'll be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He begins this teaching about hypocrisy and about listening to the heart of the Father and listening and living a confessing life towards the Son and hearing and receiving the words of the Holy Spirit. Our text will be divided into two sections here, so if you're taking notes, it's divided into two, two uh, divisions. There we go. <laughs> two divisions of our text. The first one, verses 1 through 5, the consequence of hypocrisy. And verses 6 through 12, the cure for hypocrisy. The consequence of hypocrisy and the cure 
for hypocrisy. So first of all, we'll, we'll focus on the first one, the consequence of hypocrisy. So starting out in verse uh, 1 here, when he's talking about these, these crowds, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which, he says, is hypocrisy. So he tells us what the leaven is, and then he compares it to this Greek term. Now, he's got a Hebrew audience, right? But he's pulling from Greek culture this specific word. Hypocrites. Hippocrates. These were actors on the stage in Greek theater. Now, these are... In those days, you know, a lot of times it was sort of silent theater. You didn't have lines. Everything was done by action, by display. It was like mime work, right? And so uh, these, these characters in Greek plays would come out, and to express who they were, they would wear these big masks, right? Like think tiki mask, right? And they would have big exaggerated features. So if it was like a, you know, um, a, a really evil person in the play, then he would have, you know, like maybe a, a long hook pointy nose and, and a frown on his face. And they would come out and hope to do, you know, they're dancing around with this big mask on their face and their actions are demonstrating who the character is in the play. And they would tell a story through the use of these masks and their actions. And Jesus says, the leaven of the Pharisees makes you an actor, makes you a hypocrite. How is that? How does, how does hypocrisy do that in our lives? First of all, if you're taking notes, hypocrisy makes you hide. In the same way that actors on a stage are hiding behind this mask. In that same way, when you have hypocrisy in your life, when, when that's at the root of who you are, it makes you hide all the time. As a result, the real you is never dealt with for actual change. You just get good at wearing masks. You essentially become a performer. But you never actually are you perform but you not but you are not ever actually really the reality and the substance of what you're acting or portraying see that's the danger of hypocrisy you spend your life hiding behind a mask so Hypocrisy makes you hide. Hypocrisy makes you perform. It makes you an actor. It keeps you stuck in this shame cycle like Adam hiding in the garden. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? Rabbis teach us that, that in the garden, that Adam and Eve were, were somehow clothed with the glory of God, maybe in the same way that Moses was clothed with the glory of God in on Mount Sinai. That when sin entered the picture, the glory that surrounded them departed and they immediately felt exposed and naked. Now being simple, not being experts like we are at hiding, they just, they just grabbed whatever they could find, you know. What's the biggest leaf in the garden? They began to kind of like cover up, like well, how do I... How do I fix this? How do I? And then they began to hide when they realized they couldn't fix it. They, 
They began to conceal themselves and hide. Why is that? This is because even Adam and Eve understood the devastating effect of sin. They they had a conscience being made in the image of God. The conscience inside of them was saying, you're wrong, you've sinned, you're broken, something's wrong with you. And they immediately felt that exposure. And as soon as their conscience was prodded by the Holy Spirit, they began to conceal what was true. See, hypocrisy makes you an actor, makes you a performer, somebody who conceals who they really are. Everything that is true is what you really are. Everything that, listen, everything that is true is what you really are. You can hide from it, but you cannot hide it from God. You see, this type of lifestyle where, where, where you're wearing a mask where you're performing, where you're an actor in front of other people, where, where, where you're constantly consumed with like image crafting your life is antithetical to a life filled with faith. This type of lifestyle is antithetical to faith because instead of trusting Jesus as your only source of righteousness, as the one who gives you His righteousness, you act like you're righteous through performance theater. You carry on. You, you go, okay, look, what, what are the things that make people look holy? I'm a, other people are lifting their hands up. Here's me. Eyes are closed. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's me too. Oh, other people are going to church. Okay, I'm going to church too. Other people have a, a certain type of Bible, a certain translation. Well, I'm going to fit in. Other people do these good works. I'm going to do those too. It's just mimicking, imitating. But the substance of who you are is unchanged. Which leads us to the third thing. Hypocrisy makes you shallow. Let me say it this way. Hypocrisy makes me shallow. It's interesting, Jesus uses both masks and yeast as a comparison of this heart condition. You know, they both have the same result. They create false impressions. That's ultimately what happens. Masks produce exterior appearances that are different from the actual reality. That's what masks do. And yeast makes dough inflated on the outside. But the weight, the substance, is really unchanged. In the same way, hypocrisy keeps you from the depth and from the weight of character that only comes 
from being changed through self-confrontation. Listen, if I am always wearing a mask, if I am always just acting and I'm never actually taking responsibility for what's in my heart, if I never am brought to the crisis of having to confront my heart, my wickedness, my sin, my words, my behaviors, if I always deflect through acting or through wearing a mask or through putting on a front, the substance and character of who I am is unchanged. I could think of a young man in our youth group when, uh, when I was still youth pastor who had a problem with just compulsive, compulsive lying. He would just, like every other sentence out of his mouth was just a lie. I saw him the other day. He was walking through town. His life is an absolute wreck. He's still the same 16-year-old kid. He's never grown up. Why? Because lies help him to escape taking responsibility for his actions. The lies help him to get away from how his conscience feels about who he is on the inside. And instead of it pushing him in and and, and creating repentance in his life, he skirts around it to avoid the bad feelings. And here he is, almost a decade later, same kid, unchanged. Guys, the weight and substance of who we are is determined by our ability to really deal with our true hearts before God. And this is why in verses 2 and 3, Jesus offers a warning. He says, listen, hypocrisy will expire. Fourth point here. Hypocrisy will expire. Nothing hidden will stay hidden. Who you actually are is how you will stand before God. He makes this reference in the, the third verse there about these private rooms that What's said in private rooms will be proclaimed upon rooftops. These inner rooms, uh, the Greek word there is tamion, and it indicates uh, or seems to point to a sort of root cellar that was used for storage or, or, or like a basement inside of a house. It's referred to in other places like Matthew 6, 6, when Jesus encourages his followers to go into their inner room or their basement where they can be hidden away, where nobody else can see, where nobody else knows, and they're in secret to lift up prayers. Not to do it in public display as, as some sort of badge of righteousness. It's the same thing that's hinted at later on in this chapter, in verse 24, when it talks about the sparrows not having storehouses or places to keep their food. It's a cellar of sorts. And Jesus is essentially saying here, that what's hidden in the basement of your heart will be revealed. Have you guys ever been in a house 
where like a mouse died. Nobody's discovered it. Trap went off a few days ago and nobody seemed to notice because it's in that awkward corner that's kind of out of sight or behind the fridge or, or whatever. And all of a sudden you walk in and you're like, oh, oh, can't see it on the surface, but something's wrong here. It's kind of like our lives. Our lives are like that. I love the way Pastor Brent puts it. He says, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. What's in the well of our hearts comes up in the bucket. You you can't stop it. It's the way things are. We may be able to hide for a season, but not forever. One, One of the clearest examples that I can think of, I was talking with some very dear friends of mine, uh, this last week about this very issue. One of the clearest examples I can think of is people who age, people who get older. Like when you're young, you're, you're sort of trying to fit in. You know what I mean? Uh, there's that sense from like junior high forward, like I need to find my tribe and I need to belong somewhere. And so you see the junior hires awkwardly sort of clamoring to try and find their niche and fit in on high schoolers or <clears throat> starting to come into their own and be expressive of who they are. But they're still really, you know, it's that pack mentality. I need to fit somewhere. But as time goes on, You care less and less about those things. By the time you get old, you're like, you know what, forget it. I used to want to wear jeans, but now I just wear polyester. <laughs> I used to try and like get a belt and like suck it up tight, you know, and try and look fit. Now it's like, forget that, man. I, I want ones with a stretchy band around the outside. I just, gosh, it just makes so much sense. Used to buy really painful, expensive shoes. Now you get the ones with Velcro. You don't even have to lace up. Right? You're like, forget caring what people think. I'm over that. Or, or maybe it's not so much forget caring. I'm over that. It's, it's that you actually just don't have the ability to hide what's really there. The elder who took over the church in Cave Junction when I came to Heritage, he he used to have this saying, and it's always stuck with me. He said, um, said, you know when people drink alcohol, their ability to mask who they really are on the inside is, is greatly diminished, that their filter turns off. So whoever they are on the inside really comes out to the outside. So if you're like a really sad, depressed person, next thing you know, you're, like you're, you're crying in the back room, like, nobody loves me. Oh, I'm so alone. Everybody hates me. If you're a really happy person, you're like slobbering all over your best friends, like, oh, you're my best friend. I love you so much. It's because you can't hide what's on the inside any longer. It's just gone, Right? I think age does the same thing. And here's the thing. Friends, hear me. This is why today, if you hear God's voice trying to change you, trying to shape your heart, do it now. Because you won't be able to hide it when you get older. 
you're a bitter angry person who holds on to every hurt, who, who walks around like they have an empty backpack and anytime somebody throws a rock, they pick it up, they stick it in their backpack and they just move through life until they're 70, 75, 80 and they're just so weighed down with all the hurts of their life. And they, whenever somebody stops to talk to them, they, they say, oh, you want to see? You want to see what my life is like? And they just start pulling out rocks out of the backpack. Here's all my hurts. Here's all the things that have happened to me. Look at how badly I've been abused. Change now before you're that person. If you've got wickedness in your heart and you are perverted and you've been concealing that and you're wrestling with lust and it is winning and it is conquering you, change now because I've seen the dirty old man. I've seen the dirty old lady who's lost all sense of honor, who can no longer filter the awful stuff that happens in their hearts. Repent now. And here's the truth, guys. Here's the truth. Even if you happen to be able to maintain it through life, and you don't lose your ability to present the best side of yourself in your older years, When you stand before God, who you really are is what's on display. Even if we hide it in this life, it will be openly displayed before Jesus. And this is why he says in verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus uses the phrase hell here. He says, fear the one who has the power to throw you into hell. He's talking about God, right? He has that kind of authority to cast you into hell. But the word hell that he uses is Gehenna. Gehenna was a local place, and Jesus is doing this very specifically. One, because it was something, it was terminology that they all use regularly. They spoke as, of, of the place that you would go after you died if you did not, if you were not a part of God's covenant people, as hell, as the wasteland, as the garbage dump. And there was this little valley called the Valley of Hinnom. In the Old Testament, it was a place where people offered their children as sacrifice. There was this false god, Molech, and they would play drums really loudly so you couldn't hear the cries of these babies. And there was this false god, Molech. It was a little fat Buddha-looking god with a big open spot on this bronze statue that they would stack full of wood. And then over that open spot where the fire pit essentially was in this belly of a fat god, were two hands made of brass or bronze. And while the drums were playing in the name of prosperity for the purpose of like wanting the blessed life, the best life, people would bring their babies and lay them on the incandescent hot hands of Molech and burn their infants to gain blessing or favor from this false deity. Such a shameful thing that later on when reforms happened through 
kings that God raised up in Israel, they turned that place into a dump. And it was the dump from that point forward. The valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Now, this became synonymous with the idea of hell or the life that is discarded and thrown away. The life of no eternal value. And Jesus says here essentially, guys, hypocrisy is a wasted life. You throw your life away. All the realities of God's work in your life are never actually realized. It's the equivalent of throwing your life in the garbage. Why? Because all the work that God wanted to do in you, all the work that God wanted to do through you was prevented by your willingness to just be fake. Your contentedness to never have your heart changed and transformed through conviction by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, don't throw your life in the dump. Don't waste it. I was talking to Sam earlier this week as we were preparing for this and, and I was telling him some of the things that I wanted to share and he said, you know, sometimes, Jeremy, we just need like some, um, we, we need like some heart checks, some indicators. How do we know when we're being hypocritical? So we, we, we talked about together a, a few ways that you can know if you're a hypocrite. First of all, hypocritical people are exhausted from constantly maintaining the perception of others and image crafting. It's a nonstop job. You're just constantly thinking about, like, okay, how can I present myself in the best light? How can I look good to other people so that they like me, so that they want me, and so that, you know, they think I'm a nice person or whatever, right? And so you're, you're just always expending emotional energy to present the best version of yourself. Hypocritical people rush to defend themselves because image is their greatest value. If you're a person who wrestles with hypocrisy, um, anytime somebody points out your sin, your first thought is like, I just need to defend myself. I don't want to have to confront this thing because that's the pattern of life that keeps you from experiencing conviction that leads you to change. Image is your highest value, so you defend yourself. Hypocritical people are inconsistent and unreliable. They change with social pressure and internal fear. A person who struggles with hypocrisy will constantly be like, well, when I'm with these people, I'm this way. But when I'm over here with this group, this way is unpopular, so I'm this way. Remember, that's what Paul the Apostle rebuked in Peter. So just so you know, take a little bit of encouragement. If you're saying like, man, that's me. I'm wrestling with hypocrisy in that way. Peter wrestled with it too. Paul called him out on it because he, when he was with the Jews, he acted one way. When he was with the Gentiles, he acted the other way. And, and when Paul saw it, he rebuked him to his face. He wouldn't let him out of it. He said, Peter, how is it that you are behaving in this way when you're with the Gentiles and this way with the... It's inconsistent. It's not okay. You need to repent. And then he wrote it down in Scripture so every Christian could learn from it.
Hypocritical people are inconsistent and unreliable. They change with social pressure and internal fear. Hypocritical people blame shift and don't take ownership of their uh, failing because it makes them look bad. They, they want to blame something else. The dog. My mom. My boss. My circumstance. Whether or not I've eaten. It's anything else's fault other than the fact that I'm responsible for the words that come out of my mouth and what comes out of my heart. They blame shift. Hypocritical people spend a great deal of time ruminating on or ruminating about what others think of them and managing their perception rather than examining whether they are consistent with their own values. The constant meditation of the hypocrite is, what, what do others think? What are they thinking about me? How do I look? What's happening when they are talking about me? That's their constant meditation. Rather than saying, who am I really? What does God want to shape in me and change in me and shift in me? These are indicators of hypocrisy. John Wesley used to have a self-examination quiz that he gave out to those that were part of his discipleship club. He formed at Oxford, a group that detractors called the Holy Club in a sort of derisive way. They first appeared in about 1729 or 1730, and he just had this list of questions. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Do, do I confidently pass on to others what has been said to me in confidence? Am I using information to climb the social ladder? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress and friends or work habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, self-justifying? Did the Bible really live in me today? Do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Am I, am I enjoying prayer? Do I like talking to Jesus? When did I last speak to someone else of my faith? Do I pray about the money that I spend? Do I, do I get up from bed on time and go to bed on time? Did I disobey God in anything? Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy and it's telling me no? Am I defeated in any part of my life? There's this ongoing thing that I've just acquiesced and said, oh, I'll just keep it hidden. Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I'm not like other people, especially in, in the same manner like the Pharisee who despised the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward or disregard? And if so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble and complain constantly because the world is really about me and I'm concerned with how it interacts with my life and lastly is Christ real to me when his discipleship groups would get together they would ask these questions of one another say let's be honest about who we are with each other 
So what's the cure? What's the cure for hypocrisy? You're like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm dealing with some hypocrisy. There's some stuff in my heart. I, you know, I check, check, check. These are things that I'm really wrestling with. What's the cure? Jesus gives it to us here in this passage, verses 6, and six through 12. The cure for hypocrisy. There are three things that Jesus mentions here. He mentions all of the persons of the Godhead in these next verses. And at the end, we'll see some of the ways that our relationship to all three persons of the triune God intersects with our lives. So let's talk about the first one, verses 6 and 7. How, what is the cure for hypocrisy? First of all, embrace the care of the Father. Listen, Jesus knew that all hypocrisy is rooted ultimately in fear. It's rooted in fear. The problem was that the fear was not properly placed. He says, don't fear man who even after he's taken your life can't do anything else to, to you. Fear the one who can take your life and also cast you into hell. That's the one you should be. You, it's good that you have fear. You just got fear placed in the wrong place. Fear God. You say, okay, well, yeah, he has that ultimate kind of authority. He can cast me into hell. That is a fearful thing. I'm really freaked out by this God. And then he follows it up with this. What kind of God do we fear? The same one that keeps track of the sparrows. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, two sparrows are sold for a penny. When he says that you get five for two pennies, he's telling you there's a freebie. Right? In other words, God keeps track. He's counting the freebie. He's aware that it's there. Even the freebie counts. The cost is not for that freebie. But he sees the freebie anyway. He's keeping track. What kind of God? He counts the freebie. Not even the freebie is lost on him. He counts the hair. Verse 7. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. He counts the hair on your head. We, we lose about 50 to 100 hairs from the head every day, and then they're replaced. The only time you ever keep track is when you only have like five left. <laughs> right? Or when all of a sudden they seem to have transplanted to your back. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, geez, where did that come from? We don't keep track, but God does. Every day he's like, oh, you lost 15, you gained 20, you're up five. His constant conscientious awareness of the intricacies of his creation, he holds the atoms together. That's the kind of God we have. And then he concludes by saying this. He not only counts the freebie and counts the hair, he saves the lost. Listen, aren't you more valuable than the sparrows? Don't you think you're more important than counting the number of hairs? If he's that into detail, if he is handling the minutia, don't you think he cares about your own soul? Your heart. That's the kind of God 
And you need to embrace the care of the Father. Second of all, you need to embrace the confession of the Son, verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But if but the one who does, denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Here's what he's saying. True confession always moves from the heart to the lips. We know that from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you believe in the heart, you confess it with your mouth. So real belief in the heart has to work its way out your lips. That's just the way it works. But the biblical idea of confession doesn't stop there. Matter of fact, confession was considered a lifestyle. People who were martyred or who were under threat of martyr, but not actually martyred, did not have to give their lives. They were called confessors. They were willing to go the distance, even though they didn't have to give their life. They continued to stand with their life on the line. They were called confessors. And the Bible has in mind here the idea that our words and our actions or lifestyle should be harmonious. When we say we believe in God but deny Him by our lifestyle, that is not a confession. That's a denial. But when our words, our heart, our words, and our actions are all aligned and harmonious, that is a confessed life. And Jesus says, you offer a life like that to me, and I'll offer you eternal life. That's how that works. So we embrace the confession of the Son. If we say that we believe Christ is our only hope of salvation, then we should love, exalt, and cling to him the same way that we would a parachute after being thrown from a plane. The reality of a confessional lifestyle has eternal implications. Jesus says that a life lived confessing him will be met by an eternity with him confessing us. And lastly, but certainly not least, embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a much confused uh, subject. A lot of people get really worked up about this, but I think it's real simple, and I hopeful, I'm hopeful that you can see from the entire context. Here's what was happening. The Pharisees were denying what they had plainly seen about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is convicting and pressing on them the reality. It's Him. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one God's been sending. This is the promise fulfilled. They knew that it was true. But they shoved it down. A lot of people fear that they have somehow committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But to really sort that out, you need to understand what kind of sins God's forgiven. In the Bible, there are examples of him forgiving murderers and adulterers and liars and idolaters and those who were on their deathbed hanging on a cross next to him. There's proof of him forgiving the sins of those who are about to stab him through with a spear. The one sin that's unforgivable is when the Holy Spirit is pressing you towards Jesus and saying, your only hope of being saved is through him, and you push it away. You blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit, just like the Pharisees did. That's not God. He doesn't love me like that. That's not true. 
This is further reinforced by what Jesus says. In verses 10 through 11, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Here's what he's saying. If you listen to the Spirit for salvation, and God saves you through your listening to the Spirit, you can also listen to the Spirit in that moment of need where you are being called upon by God to stand for your faith. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. If you listen to his conviction about Jesus, you can listen to him when the time comes to stand for him and there's a cost attached. Now listen, here's the conclusion. True confession and belief in God must be, first of all, integrated into the fabric of our lives. It's not hypocritical. It's the reality of living it out. It needs to be rooted in a deep fear of God. If it's rooted in a fear of man, you will always be wishy-washy. You will always be tossed to and fro by the waves. It needs to be lived out in the world, not only through our words and through our bumper stickers and through our jewelry and whatever else, not just outward signs, but in the demonstration of an obedient life to Jesus. And it must be in reliance upon the Holy Spirit who will empower and instruct us. Listen, perhaps you have given in to the idea that my faith is a, just a private thing. Listen, Jesus knows no such wishy-washiness. Jesus doesn't believe in that kind of faith. Perhaps you thought, well, I witness with my actions and not my words. Jesus doesn't know that kind of faith either. Or maybe you thought, I, I know what the Holy Spirit's been telling me, and I know that I need to respond to what Jesus has done for me by dying on the cross, but I'm just not ready or willing to suffer the embarrassment of admitting that I need a Savior. Jesus warns against it. He says, man, you are blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. He has been sent to save you. Don't deny. Don't push away. Listen, today, if you hear the Holy Spirit telling you that it's time to give your life to Christ, time to speak up, and witness for him. Time to make a change. Time to repent. Do not let this moment pass you by. Now is the moment to yield. Would you take just a brief second right now? Every eye closed, every head bowed. And I want to ask you to pray this prayer from the heart to God. Lord, search me. Know me. Show me what kind of wickedness or hypocrisy I might be avoiding. Help me to confront those realities in my life. And change me. Father, 
I lift up those here who have heard your word today. May it bear fruit in their lives. Keep us from the leaven of the Pharisees. God, may we be an authentic and real and true community of faith who deeply loves you and is deeply committed to you and loves your truth and your word above popularity and the opinions of men. And may we, as a community of the redeemed, walk that truth out faithfully to your praise and to your glory that when we stand before you having lived a life that has confessed you, that we might see you also confess us. We ask this in the name of and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful July 4th week, and we'll see you next weekend.